Open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. St. Bernard of Clairvaux is the one who's thought to have originally said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Many have found reason to quote that through the years as they have observed around them how many affirm so many good things and yet how many fail to follow through with them. Their good intentions are meaningless because of their failed efforts. Or Shakespeare in his uh, play, The Merchant of Venice, in the, in the lips of the servant Porteus, says, If to do were as easy to know what were good to do, chapels had been churches and poor men's cottages, princes' palaces. Little chapels would be great big churches if just people could do what they know to do. Portia goes on to say, it's the good divine who follows his own destructions. I can easier teach 20 what were good to be done than one of the 20 to follow my own teaching, than be one of the 20 who follow my own teaching. The brain may devise laws for the blood, but a hot temper leaps over a cold decree. We all know that. That's the world's perspective as well. We struggle as we go through life, and so often imaged is this little angel on one shoulder, this little devil on the other, always whispering in our ear what is the right thing to do, and yet so often it's the angel who disappears in a puff of smoke, right? Well, this is the struggle that we find described for us right here in this passage, Romans chapter 7, a passage that, as we mentioned last week, has proven difficult for even the best of exegetes. It has been a passage subjected to endless debate, but the overall thrust of the chapter is clear. The point is established in the opening verse of the chapter. Do you not know, brothers, I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives, but a married, uh, for a married woman is bound by the law to her husband while he lives, but if the husband dies, she's released from the law. Accordingly, she'll never be, she'll, excuse me, she'll be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive, but if her husband dies, she's freed from the law, and if she marries another, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you have died to the law. This is the overall thrust of the chapter, that you and I, who are in Christ, have died to the law, to that standard that was so definitive for the people of Israel throughout all of their ages. The whole point is that we're no longer under the law, that we've been released from it, that our relationship to it has changed, just like a widow changes in her relationship to her deceased husband. And so Paul explains, as he goes on, that while we were living in the flesh, he says in verse 5, our sinful passions were aroused by the law and were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. In other words, we were defeated when we were under the law because of the inability of our flesh to keep it. Our failed efforts in trying to keep it just compounded our guilt and brought more and more death, as Paul says. And so in verse 6, we now are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we might serve 
in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. We died, in other words, so that we can serve God in the Spirit. Now, that'll be the subject of chapter 8, the subject of this new life in the Spirit, this new service in the Spirit, this new way that we follow God by the Spirit. But before Paul gets to that, he spends really the remainder of this chapter explaining to us the way that the law was bringing death in our life. And you see how he returns to that theme in verse 10. He says, this very commandment which promised life proved to be death to me. It killed me. The very thing I was trusting in to turn me around, the very thing I was trusting in to bring about life in me, it condemned me, it killed me. That's his description of his defeat under the law. As a Jew, he thought it was going to make him holy. All it did was bring him death. It just increased his guilt. It increased his failure. It increased his culpability. But the point of clarification that Paul wants to make is that this wasn't the problem of the law. This wasn't the fault of the law. Some may misunderstand what he's saying, but he wants to clarify that in this defeat and in this failure, the problem is not that God created all these laws. The problem is not that God told us all these things to do. That's not the issue. In fact, you see how he frames it in verse 13 with a question, did that which is good then bring death to me? Did God give the law in order to kill me? By no means, he says. Any death that comes doesn't come ultimately from God. It doesn't come from His law. It comes from sin that is in you. In fact, he goes on to make the point here. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. In order that sin might be shown to be sin through the, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Paul's whole point is the problem, the problem is not the law, it's me. The problem is not the law, it is you. It is all of mankind. God's law failed to give life, it fails to give you life, but not because it is a failure, because you are a failure, because you are sinful, because sin dwells in you. In fact, your, your failure before the law should make you see that more and more. Those failures, instead of driving you away from God and away from His law, instead of driving you away from church and away from religion, those failures ought to be communicating something to you. As Paul says, the law ought to be making sin become more sinful beyond measure. It ought to, in other words, it ought to make you conclude unmistakably of the, the reality of sin in your life. That's its purpose. And beginning in verse 14, Paul gives a, an explanatory phrase. He launches, if you will, into an entire explanation to detail exactly what he means. And he does that from verses 14 through 25 with a series of three descriptions of, of defeat in his efforts to keep the law, three ways in which he uh, 
presents it, but they're all really saying the same thing. He's explaining again and again and again that the problem in all of this is not the law of God. The law of God is good and holy. The problem is that you and I were born utterly sinful. And he explains that at every turn of every defeat that he saw more and more how sin was dwelling within him. We mentioned this last week, even though Paul is speaking here in the first person, singular, and even though he's using even the, the, the present tense, if you might call it that, this is Paul speaking of himself, not as a Christian and not as a non-Christian, but this is Paul speaking of himself fundamentally as a human being. And what he's presenting here is really given to us in verse 14 when he says, I know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under to sin. In other words, I know that the law is fundamentally different than I am. I know that the law is spiritual, but I, that is me in my natural human state, am not the same. I know that I am weak. I know that I am of the flesh. I know that I am sold under to sin as a human being, he says. This is a contrast, not even between a believer and an unbeliever. This is a contrast between God's law and humans. God's perfect and righteous and holy law and imperfect human beings. And so what he gives to us here isn't some personal testimony of what's going on in his life right now. This is, this is a contrast, a contrast between the fundamental nature of the law and the fundamental nature of, of human beings. This is, in other words, this is really all from verses 14 through 25. It's all given as an explanation of his point in verse 13, an explanation, an answer to the dilemma that he presents there. And with a series of of descriptions of conflict that come up and up again, the same basic truth uh, propounded to us a threefold confession of defeat, defeat before the law, defeat before the hands of sin. And as you move through this chapter, Paul cites the problem three different ways. We could summarize it with three of his statements. He says in verse 14, I'm sold under to sin. In verse 18, nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. And down in verse 23, that the law of sin dwells in my members. Those are the conclusions he drew as he worked in struggle with this battle. Now, we looked at the first one last week in verses 14 through 17. Paul says there, we know that the law is spiritual, but I'm of the flesh sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So now it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. This is Paul's declaration, setting himself in contrast to the law. And when it comes to the question of the law's nature, whether the law is sinful or not, Paul says the issue is clear. The issue of where the problem lies is clear. The problem is not with God's law. The problem is with me. Because I, in my weakness of my flesh, I, as a human being, I 
am not perfect. The law is spiritual, but man, mankind is of the flesh, basically born corrupt. We mentioned it last week how Paul uses this word flesh over and over again. He uses it in all kinds of contexts. And it has different variations of meaning in various contexts. But the one unifying idea everywhere that Paul uses it, the one unifying idea behind the word flesh is this. It is weakness. It is weakness. Whether Paul's speaking of suffering in the flesh It's a reference to the weakness of our bodies, whether he's talking about flesh and blood not entering the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 15. It's talking about the fundamental weakness of our humanness, not able to inherit the kingdom of God. And so Paul's statement that we are in our humanness, we are essentially of the flesh, is a statement about our fundamental weakness before sin. We are essentially weak. In fact, this is the way Paul summarizes it. If you flip over to chapter 8, verse 3, When he says that God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do, he did by sending his son. So so the idea when Paul says, I am of the flesh, the idea is that I'm weak. I'm weak. And also he says there, I'm sold under sin. As we said last week, he uses this this word for slavery. Uh, The word for selling was a word for selling slaves. And he uses even the preposition here, under, which in physical terms could mean you're literally underneath something, but in conceptual terms always meant under the control of something, under the authority of something. And so he says this is who we are. In our humanness, we're under the authority, we're under the control, we're under the power of sin. And we recognize that language because this is what we have seen over and over and over again in Romans chapter 6, that without Christ, we are under the power of sin. Or as Paul says there a couple of times, we are enslaved to sin. That is who we are. That is fundamental to our human nature in these corrupted bodies. We're of the flesh and we're held captive. And the evidence for that, he says in verses 15 and 16, is that I don't do what I want to do. And I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. In other words, I declare something that I don't want to do. I, I, I frame in my mind some ideal, some standard, and even that I can't achieve. Even that I can't achieve. As Portia said, if to do were as easy to know what good we were to do, chapels would be churches. This is his testimony. The things I renounce, the things I disavow, the things I declare I'll never do, I wind up doing. It's evidence of the weakness of my flesh. And so there's defeat. Whenever we try to do good, whenever we try to do right... We never quite do it. And so his conclusion, verse 17, it's no longer I, at least the I that I imagine myself to be. It's no longer I who do it, but it's this sin that I found dwelling in me. I might imagine that I was good. I might imagine that I wanted to do the right thing. I might imagine that I wanted to obey God to do good things, but the evidence points in another direction. The evidence points to the fact that I am sold 
under in bondage to sin. Well, Paul makes a second point in our passage here uh, with a second statement that we focused on, basically saying in verses 18 through 20, nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh. And that's his point there. He says, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. And again, as we said last week, this is, this is probably the key phrase of the entire passage, helping us understand what Paul's talking about. He's not saying that we as Christians are defeated by sin, but he's saying that we as human beings do not have the resources in our flesh to defeat sin. Nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, he says, in my humanness, in my natural capacity, in my weakness as I'm born. And so he's sharing, not just personally, but representatively of us all. And when Paul says nothing good dwells in him, he's not saying good intentions aren't there. In fact, he even says in the second half of verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right. I just don't have the ability to carry it out. And when Paul says nothing good dwells in him or in his flesh, he's not talking about these ideals. Even an unbeliever, we saw last week, Even an unbeliever has high ideals. Even an unbeliever has the work of the law written on their hearts, as Romans chapter 2 says. Like everyone else, they have ideals. The problem, says Paul, is that none of us can do it. No matter how hard you try, no matter how much you commit yourself to it, over and over and over again, you will fail. He says again in verse 19, I do not do the good I want. Like almost anyone else, I want to do good, but I wasn't able. But, but the evil that I do not want is what I keep doing. Sometimes your husband or your wife comes to you and says, why, why, why did you act that way? And you might have some circumstantial reason, but in your heart what you're really saying is, I don't know. I don't know, I just keep, I want to do right, but I just keep failing. I just keep failing. Your parents come to you and say, why why did you do that? Why did you treat your sibling that way? And you say, "I, I, I don't know. Well, you ought to know. Paul says you ought to look at the evidence. The evidence is right there in front of you. It's sin. It's sin. This is exactly, by the way, what Paul confronted the Jews about back in chapter 2. They said the right things. They held to the right things. They approved. They affirmed the right things. They stated their desire to do the law. But at the end of the day, the problem was not what they affirmed, but what they did, or better yet, what they didn't do. Romans chapter 2, verse 17 But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, Because you're instructed in the law. This was their view of the law. They approved it. They declared that it was excellent. Their problem wasn't in saying. Their problem was in doing. 
That's exactly what Paul describes here in Romans 7. He was one of those Jews desiring to follow the law, wanting to do the right things, just not able to do them. John Calvin explains this, that even in unbelievers, he says, quote, There is therefore now in the human mind discernment to this extent, that it is naturally influenced by the love of truth, the neglect of which in the lower animals is proof of their gross and irrational nature. Still, it is true that this love of truth fails before it reaches the goal, forthwith falling away into vanity. In other words, there's, there, there is, in every rational and civilized human being, there's the approval of things that are right, but there's just not the ability to do them. For the Jews, it was defined by the law of God. For Gentiles, it's defined largely by their conscience or by their civil authorities or by whatever it is. They, as Paul says, by nature, they do the, the things, uh, the works of the law. So the issue is not in the statement of what you desire to do. The issue is in your failure to do it. So many people, though, excuse themselves. They excuse themselves because they have these high ideals. They excuse themselves because they believe that they want to do right. They excuse themselves because they, they, they remember that they were brought up the right way or that they affirm the right things. They say, my delight is in whatever, the law of God, in in uh, the Ten Commandments, in the virtues and the issues, uh, whatever it might be, they affirm all the right things, but the issue isn't in the affirmation. The proof of who you are is not in what you say. It's in what you do. So even with the Jews or Paul or anyone, just saying they delight in the law wasn't enough. Paul went on in Romans chapter 2, verse 21, to say to the Jews, You then who teach others, do you not teach yourself while you preach against stealing? Do you not steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. So here you are boasting in your high ideals, all the while dishonoring the very things that you claim to love. So rather than saving the knowledge that the Jews had of God's righteousness actually created a whole new level of failure. Because now not only were they guilty of whatever acts of sin they might have committed, but now they were guilty of not listening. We, we, we see a baby crying and demanding attention and food and and comfort and all these other things and we don't we don't uh, get so upset with them because we understand they don't know they haven't grown they don't they haven't uh, understood what the uh, rules of decorum and courtesy are but when we see our 12 year old acting like a baby we tell them you should know better so now your sinful selfishness that might have been manifested, it might have been maybe a little bit more excusable when you were two days old, is suddenly inexcusable because you know better. And this is where the Jews were. They knew better. And so as Paul said in verse 13, the commandment or through the commandment, sin becomes sinful beyond measure. 
Sin becomes more uh, or, or increasingly intolerable. Or as he says in Romans 2, 1, you have no excuse, old man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. When you say you delight in the law of God, when you say you have these standards, it's not necessarily a bonus. If you don't turn it on and live it out, it's actually just making it all the more inexcusable that you can affirm the ideals and still you don't do them. So for, for so many religious people, by innate sense of failure, maybe they secretly imagine that God will somehow judge them by some lower standard than His perfect truth. Maybe they secretly imagine that because in their heart they believe the right things that somehow they're going to skate by. Paul says that's not going to happen. You're going to be judged by what you do or what you don't do. Again, Calvin explains how we, when we have these ideals, but when we don't live up to them, we make excuses. He says, he writes, quote, The intellect is very seldom mistaken in the general definition or essence of the matter, but that deception begins as it advances further, namely when it descends to particulars. That homicide, putting the case in the abstract, is an evil no man will deny. And yet one who is conspiring the death of his enemy, enemy deliberates on it as if the thing was good. The adulterer will condemn adultery in the abstract, yet flatter himself while privately committing it. The ignorance lies here. That man, when he comes to the particular, forgets the rule which he laid down in the general case. This is what we do. We affirm these ideals. We say that we delight in goodness. We say we want to be good people. We say we want to do what is right. And yet at the end of the day, what happens? We don't do it. And so Paul's conclusion is he had these ideals. He wanted to follow God's law, but he was not able to. And he, no doubt, like everyone else, spent a great deal of his life making excuses, living in self-deception. But here from the vantage point of the gospel, he tells us, now if I do not do what I, if I do what I do not want to do, verse 17, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. That's the evidence. The problem isn't God's law, the problem is you. The problem isn't God's word, the problem is you. It demonstrates your fundamental nature. We can give you all the laws we want. We can teach you all the things we want. Multiply all kinds of laws all around the place. Bind them over your uh, doorstop. Put them over your mantle. Put them on your mirror. Put them on the dashboard of your car. You can put all these little things all over, but it's not going to reform you. Because law doesn't have the power to change. So it all points to one undeniable reality. Sin dwelling in you. And so we can move quickly to the third cycle of defeat that Paul describes here as our third point in our outline. In verses 21 through 25, Paul says, I see the law of sin that dwells in my members. I find it, he says, to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand, verse 21. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, 
But I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and doing what? And making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. So he's saying this is my condition. It is an unqualified victory for sin and a defeat for me. This war is waging and it seems like sin always triumphs. And it wasn't because I was some pagan Gentile. It wasn't because I wasn't raised the right way. It's not because I had some disdain even for doing the right things. In fact, Paul says, I I delight in the law in my inner being. I was happy with the law. I had no quarrel with the law. But the quarrel came in my members. Because I had the inability to live it out. A war, a law, a principle waging war against my ideals and making me a captive to sin. I wanted to do what is right, but evil was close at hand. A kind of a principle, he says, dwelling in my members. And all this points again to the evidence. In my natural humanness, I, I'm a captive to the law or the principle of sin. Now the good news, the good news is that this captivity doesn't have to be. That this captivity is not necessarily our ultimate fate. He's talking about himself here in chapter 7 and his natural humanness. But when you come to chapter 8, Paul begins to insert language of the Holy Spirit. And he begins to talk about newness of life in Christ. In fact, just over in verse 2 of chapter 8, what does he say? The law of the Spirit of life will set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin. So you see in verse 22, 23, the law of sin was battling within me and making me a captive. In chapter 8, verse 2, Christ, the the, the Spirit, set us free from that law of sin. And this is his eventual cry, even here in verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. That is the answer. That that, that, that kind of captivity to frustration, to guilt, to shame, to condemnation does not have to be the way you go through the rest of your days. Because Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit, can set you free from the law of sin and death. The one that's defeating you now. That's what you need. It's not some other law. It's not some religious activity. What you need is not some membership in a new church, some new group of friends. What you need is not a new resolution, a new determination, some rehabilitation program. All that stuff is external. But if you're not in Christ, your problem is internal. Your problem is internal. It's in your very members where sin controls you, where it makes you its captive, where it defeats you over and over again. Because you don't have the capacity to do what you say you want to do. You're a disappointment to yourself, no doubt. A disappointment to others. You feel the shame. Perhaps maybe you even want to run away from it all. 
Perhaps you want to decide that all these rules, I have to get away from all these rules, I have to get away from all these religious people, I have to get away from all this law. Maybe that's what you're thinking. The problem's not the law. The problem's not the religious people. The problem is not the rules. The problem's you. It's in your members. If you examine yourself the way Paul examines himself, you'll see the obvious evidence. It's right in front of you. As Paul says there in verse 25, with your mind you might serve the law, you might serve some ideal, but with your flesh you're serving the law of sin. And it proves you're a captive. So listen, don't make excuses. Don't go forward going into, as Calvin says, the deception. Don't sit around and blame it on something other than what it really is. Don't sit around and, and congratulate yourself that at least you just want to do the right thing. Look at what's right in front of you. It's what you're not doing. The answer is simple. Confess your weakness. Confess your failure. Confess your captivity to sin. And cry out to the Lord, deliver me from this body of death. Deliver me from this captivity. Scripture says when you do that, the Lord hears. If you confess your sin, he's faithful and just to forgive you your sin and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. God will wipe away the guilt of all those failures. He'll wipe away the shame in your conscience. He'll wipe away all of those things. Not only that, he'll give you new life. He'll give you new life. As Paul goes on to say, The power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus will help you overcome this power of sin and death that dominates you. He'll give you new life. You'll be a new creature in Christ. And that which you know to be right in your mind, you'll suddenly find the power to be able to follow. We're going to close in just a moment with a prayer and a song. But we want to challenge you if you're here today and you hear these things and you see this evidence and you know your failures, that you wouldn't leave here still a captive to all those things, but you would find someone, find me, find one of our elders, one of our Sunday school teachers, maybe some Christian that you know and respect. Find someone and let them explain to you how you can have the freedom that comes in Christ Jesus, the forgiveness of your sins, new life in Christ. Let's stand together. We'll pray. Father, we are we're so thankful that we who are in Christ have been set free from the law of sin and of death, that law which held us captive at one time, that we who once admired those noble people in the world, yet were so cast down by our own failure. And we, who even struggled in the quietness of our heart, knowing that we were not living right, 
Lord, we thank you that you've rescued us from that kind of captivity and you've brought us into the freedom of your sons. Lord, we pray for any who are here today who have not yet tasted that freedom. Would you, by the power of your Spirit, save them? Would you, O Lord, call them to yourself and to your Son, Christ Jesus? Fill them with your Spirit for new life, for glory to your name, for a life of righteousness, for a life of peace. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.